The reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, page 1205 in the Bible. The certainty of God's promise. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no, great, no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Great. Well, while the um, children make their way out and while I adjust this to a more staff-friendly height, let me give you a minute to think about this. What does the passage that we're thinking about this morning, um, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20, that's your cue to find it in your Bible, what does it have in common with bath time for a three-year-old? I'll leave that with you while I do this. Honestly, talk to each other. What does it have in common with bath time for a three-year-old? Off you go. I hope it makes sense by the end that you'll have an answer to the question, what does it have in common with bath time for a three-year-old? Come with me in your mind to our bathroom, just in your mind. It's bath night, um, and our three-year-old at the time is in the bath. He's having a great time. Um, there's bubbles, there's boats, there are cars too, don't ask. Um, and he's having a lovely time, a wonderful time, until his arch nemesis is introduced. Shampoo. Now, the bottle says, no more tears. Big farmer. Never was a more explicit lie told. The shampoo is introduced, and there are tears, lots of tears. He's terrified of the shampoo. He's scared of it. Don't tell him I told you. He's crying and he's saying, get it out, get it out. And I'm saying, well, let me just put the water through your hair. That'll get the shampoo out. And he's saying, no. And I'm saying, well, what do you want me to do then? And he says, get it out. And I say, well, let me put the water through your hair then. And he says, no. He can't listen to reason. He can't regulate his emotions. He can't contain all of his feelings. His fear of shampoo has driven him to distraction. It's distorting his reality. It's disrupting his faith 
in me. Now, the people hearing this sermon that we've been studying for the past few weeks were people like you and me. They were real people. They weren't just characters in a horrible histories book. They were real humans, honestly. And I don't know whether they did shampoo or whatever, but they had plenty of fears in their lives too. And the circumstances they're in at the time of hearing this sermon being preached to them are making them doubt. Are they making them drift? They're making them wonder whether all this Jesus stuff is worth it at all. Some people they know might be locked up. Other people they know have left following Jesus altogether. And maybe they're thinking, they're my two options. Locked up, walk away. So what are they meant to do? And I think this is what our passage this morning is speaking into this morning. In the face of many scary Painful distractions keep trusting God. So let's walk through uh, the passage together. If you've got it in front of you, it'll be really helpful um, for you. And we'll start it in verse 13. And it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so... After waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now, in your Bibles, that might be indented, or you might have quote marks around it. And that's because the author is drawing your mind back. He's making this big hyperlink to a different story in the Bible. It's a story about hope and patience and faith. The author's using Abraham here as an illustration of hope, patience, and and faith. And then he's calling on a particular event that we look at to drive the point home. So to understand Abraham's story, we have to go even a little bit further back, right back to Genesis chapter 1, um, 1 to 3 really, where God reveals his, his whole plan. And you'll remember that, that God's plan was to bless his creation through people. But by the time we get to chapter 12 of Genesis, We've seen humanity at its worst, really. Honestly, read it. And we're left wondering, how on earth is God going to bless his creation through these people? And as you've got that question ringing in your ears, Abraham enters the story. And God answers the question by making Abraham a promise. God promises Abraham, not the whole humanity, just Abraham, that God would bless the whole earth through Abraham's huge family. And he promises it twice. You can find it in chapters 12 and 15. And when he's making that promise, God now, to Abraham, he does something unexpected. God puts his own honor, glory, and reputation as the collateral for the promise being kept. Big stakes. He sacrifices animals and kind of says, through ceremony, let what happened to these animals happen to me, God that is, if I don't keep my promise. High stakes. In other words, if Abram doesn't become the father of this huge nation, and if Abram's family doesn't bless the earth, that's on God. If God withholds the blessing, God is cursed. Well, there's one hitch. Abraham has no children, 
And 25 years pass, a quarter of a century, and Abraham still has no children. And the readers, now you guys know this very well, so the suspense is lost on you. But the original readers would have been on the edge of their seats. When is this going to happen? What happens if it doesn't? When on earth is God going to keep his promise to bless the earth through this one family? And eventually, in a very unlikely old age, Abraham fathers a son. His name is Isaac. Hooray, you think. Finally, God keeps his promise and everything is going to be okay. But then we get to the bit that the author is referencing here this morning, chapter 22 in your Bibles of Genesis, where God tests Abraham. And I don't know where that sits with you this morning about God testing Abraham, but there it is. He tests him and says, you know, Isaac, your son, the future of your bloodline, the only way for more and more generations through which the earth will be blessed. You know him. Take him to the top of that mountain and sacrifice him to me. I know. Stay with it. Try and hear it again for the first time. What? And Abraham does. And at the last moment, when the altar is built and the wood is, you know, soaked with stuff to light it, and the knife is in Abraham's hand over his son's chest, God stops him. And it's here in chapter 22 that the promise made to Abraham all the way back at the beginning of his life that he would be the father of a huge nation reaches a climax. God doubles down on that promise that he's already made twice. He doubles down on it and he extends it. God made a promise and now he swears an oath. And this is where the author is drawing from in, in chapter 6. Genesis 22, verse 17, if you want to flick to it quickly, I'll read it out anyway. It says this, I will surely bless you. That's what we hear in Hebrews 6, isn't it? And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And there's this extra bit that the readers in the room, the original audience, would be pulling out of their own minds because they know this off by heart. And the other bit is this. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. Old Testament talk for your children, one of your children, will overcome enemies. God swears by the ultimate thing himself. There isn't anything greater, is there? No? Just checking. God swears by the ultimate thing himself, and he says, your family will bless the world, and your descendant will overcome his enemies. As I am God, he says, I will make this happen. By my own glory and reputation, I swear this oath. And Abraham then received what was promised. That's what it says in verse 15, except it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Because he didn't receive what was promised. He didn't instantly have this whole nation of children. They didn't pop up out of the sand of the desert or wherever he was. All his enemies weren't instantly overcome. But it's almost like the fact that God has promised and sworn an oath makes it so certain 
it's as good as done. Abraham believes that God's promise is unchanging and unchangeable. So how does it fit in with this little passage? Come back to the Hebrews in the room listening to this. In verse 11 and 12, just before this um, section that we've read this morning, the Hebrew author wants the listeners to have the full assurance of hope, to be faithful and patient despite all the testing circumstances they experience. So he draws on this story where the full assurance of hope rests on God's promise and oath, on God's word, on God's character, on his hymnness. He draws on a story where the full assurance of hope is an anchor that continues to be faithful and patient in the most testing circumstances. And then the author goes on to say, verse 16 to 18, read it with me. It says, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. Now, if you've got a good handle on verses 13 to 15, I'm hoping this little chunk makes a bit more sense. There's a change of person to notice here, isn't there? Is he talking about Abraham still? Anyone? <laughs> I'll wait. <laughs> yes or no? No. You see, he's talking about the heirs of what was promised. And that's the people in the room, not Abraham. He's not the heir. He has the promise. It's the people after Abraham. The people in the room hearing this for the first time, those who've put their trust in Jesus. And the author's saying, as strong as that promise was to Abraham, a promise times an oath staked by God's own reputation and glory, that's how sure our hope is. We can be faithful, patient, and hopeful because God, the promise maker, promise keeper, has the same purpose still, to bless and overcome. In Abraham's story, God says, I will, I will, I will. But the authors move the narrative along here. He says, God has, God has, God has. They're not to look to the top of the mountain where Abraham's got the knife over Isaac's chest. They're to look to the top of another mountain. They're meant to see God's son sacrificed and see God confirm and complete his purpose. It's like the author saying, hope isn't a future thing to cross your fingers for, guys. Hope is a person fully committed taking all the cost on himself. God's commitment to his purpose is unchanging and unchangeable. And that reliability of God's commitment is a hope, is an anchor for the soul. Keep going then, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, 
has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And there's a ton of stuff to say about those two verses. In fact, the author himself has given me a get-out-of-jail-free card here because that's what he's going to do, or they are going to do, I should say, over the next few chapters and, and, and verses. They're going to pull out those themes, so stay tuned. I'm not doing it this morning. Stay tuned. If you're visiting, there's a podcast, so you, know, you won't miss out. These last two verses are like a hinge, and they transition back to the author's main argument about Jesus being the great high priest, a wonderful theme. But in the middle of it is this very real recognition of circumstances and hope and the tension between the two of them. So what is the author trying to say here in these few verses? What's he trying to get us to realize? I think he's saying you can be fully assured. God promised, God did. Jesus is your hope. Jesus has overcome. Jesus has conquered sin and death. Jesus brings you into God's presence forever and always. Keep putting your faith in him. Keep trusting him. I know this stuff is all going on. Flee to Jesus, he says. Hold fast to Jesus. Put your hope in Jesus. So imagine them in the room hearing this. Candles are in my mind. I think it's dark. I don't know why. I think it's dark. They've had a long day. And they've drawn together and there's this new exciting letter they want to go through together. And I wonder how it lands with them. Do you think about that? These real people sitting like you are now, maybe, hearing this in their circumstances, in the testing, in the hard stuff, in the day-to-day stuff of life, which is testing enough sometimes. I wonder how it landed with them. Silence? Applause? Maybe, it's loud. Blank faces? Tears? Disappointment? These are people under pressure. Some of them are counting the cost, they're counting the scars maybe of this following Jesus way of life. And we can read between the lines and think they might be asking questions like, if I just, if I just quiet quit on Jesus, if I just drift away, will anyone notice? Or maybe they're asking, I think maybe wouldn't our lives be easier if we just packed all this in? What if they do to me what they did to them? Well, I don't think the author was naive. I don't think they were holding out this vision of Jesus as a a one-off cure, antibiotics, if you will, for whatever's going on with them. I don't think that the author is just offering them a Jesus that just says, oh, I know, they're there. I don't think that's what he's doing. He's offering so much more. Look again at the passage. Do you hear it when you're reading it? Your fear runs deep. God's promises are deeper. Yes, your circumstances are really hard. God's love for you is greater. Yes, your day-to-day is unsteady. Jesus is a solid rock. Yes, your faith, your commitment maybe, if I can put it like that, waxes 
and wanes. But Jesus is constant and certain. As weak as your grasp feels sometimes, Jesus is, is stronger. Jesus isn't a fix for all their circumstances. Jesus is where they are meant to go when whatever is surrounding them and dominating them is crushing them. You don't flee your circumstances, he seems to say. You flee to Jesus. That's different. Faith in Jesus doesn't mean the absence of fear and pain, does it? Faith in Jesus means when fear and pain or whatever it is, you name it, come, Jesus is with you and you can trust him. Faith in Jesus means that when life does what life does, you are secure. I wonder if they got that in the room together. Faith in Jesus is a posture. It's not a pose, it's a posture. It's the shape of a heart attitude that, that breathes action into life. A shape that keeps on turning and returning to Jesus over and over and over. I wonder if they got that. Faith in Jesus isn't some great big lifeboat on the choppy waters of life. It doesn't lift you out of the waves. The outcome of faith in Jesus is so secure, so safe, so anchored in his full and complete work of salvation that the absolute worst, the absolute worst those hundred foot waves can do to you is get you wet. I wonder if they got that. And even when the thickest storms of life have absolutely soaked you to your skin, there he is. The Lord Jesus, right there with you. Dripping wet too, by the way. Anchoring you in the very presence of God forever. Showering you with his love. I wonder if they got that. Well, what about us then? What might this mean for us? And I promise I'm coming back to the bath later on, if anyone's still kind of wondering. We might not be living under exactly the same pressures that those original hearers did, but there are an unending amount of things that would distract our hearts, that would distort reality, and that would disrupt faith. And we're going to think about them as waves because of anchor. Is that, is that okay? Okay, good. There's always waves on the sea, aren't there? Day in, day out, they vary in size, but they're always there. Sometimes a murmur, sometimes foam and fury. And they're your normal kind of surface waves. The wind is blowing or the moon is doing whatever. I don't know, science. In my work, I'm a teacher not a science teacher. <laughs> I teach a class of four going on five-year-olds. I don't know what I did to deserve it, but there we are. And a funny thing happened to me in my work this week. I found out that a colleague of mine, who I hope doesn't listen to the podcast, a colleague of mine who I worked with nearly 10 years ago has kind of leapfrogged me on the career progression ladder. Something about right place, right time, I'm sure, but whatever. He used to be my junior, and now he's gotten ahead of me. And so he let me know. He sent me a text, and I was all like, oh, that's so great. 
I'm so pleased for you. It'll be a great experience. Uh, you'll be great. Or take me in another situation, at work again, maybe. I spend a lot of time at work. Well, apart from the holidays, actually. I'm off this week. Imagine me at work again, and part of my job is to make some decisions. I know. It's impressive, isn't it? But this week, I'd made a decision, and then my boss and made my decision. Legitimate reasons for doing so, again, timing, whatever. And on the surface, I was like, oh, yes, very wise, very wise. Yeah, that sounds like the right thing to do. Yeah, I'm so sorry. But you know what? In both of them, my heart was going, what? How dare you do that to me? I'm so right about this. What are you not understanding about all of this that I am? And so on. Coupled with some shame, a tint of embarrassment, and not a little damage to my very healthy ego, my pride had taken a hit. And my defenses kicked in. And, you know, when I say defenses, I mean sin. <laughs> a little petulance, a little withholding, a growing desire to get even. I know, a grown adult that they let preach on a Sunday. <laughs> it's what I'm like. Jealousy, pride, so on. Don't worry, I'm sure it doesn't happen to you. Why am I telling you these things? Well, not because they make me look good. They're ugly things that turn me inward and lead to despair. I'm telling you these things because they're good illustrations of those surface waves, just those normal day-to-day -day things that are enough to distort reality, to distract the heart, to disrupt, the, disrupt my faith. Enough to make me grab out and reach for control. Anyone else go there? And not trust. I wonder if you can relate. I wonder whether there are times in your day-to-day, -day, I'm sure they're not as bad as mine, fine, when your faithfulness and patience are tested too. When your hope is diminished. Because of an Instagram post that you saw? Or an opportunity to laugh at someone else's expense that was just too easy to do? Or a look that you thought meant something? Or because they let you down again? Or because they've got new stuff again? Or because they always get things wrong and you could do it so much better? Or is that only me? Times when we reach for control and not trust. Well, if they're the day-to-day the -day waves, I don't know if you're familiar with rogue waves. Have you seen them? Terrifying. They are, and this is the description I found on the internet, unusually large and suddenly appearing waves. <laughs> no, thank you. Out there on the open water of the ocean, don't worry if you're going down to you know, Barry Island later on, you're probably safe. On the open ocean out there, you're sailing your boat and then whoosh, a 100-foot, 90-foot wave out of nowhere, just by itself, a rogue wave. And if those things that I described are kind of like your day-to-day -day stuff, 
There's also these rogue wave moments in our lives, aren't there? Those things that split your life before that thing and then after that thing. If the day-to-day waves can rock us, these rogue waves can wreck us. It's January 2021, and Jen and I are at the hospital for a 12-week scan. We're excited, nervous, curious, all of that stuff. Except when the lady had the stick in her hand and she was scanning, she was looking for such a long time. And then she went to get a colleague, and that's never good, is it? And then they're both looking for a long time, and they're speaking their kind of, we scan for babies every day code, but I knew already what they were saying. I'm so sorry, she said. There's no heartbeat? Generally, I had to lie down. Jen was fine. Jen was kind of like, okay, fine, I'm pressing this. Me, my colour drained from my face. I generally had to lie down on the table that, that Jen was getting scammed on. She had to move, like, not great. A rogue wave? You can't help it, can you? But, like, imagine that life that you're hoping for. A person... A name, maybe? A rogue wave wreaking havoc. And I'm tempted to play it down, to kind of be like, well, you know, this happens, it's not unusual, and people go through worse things, and God has given us a son already. But pain isn't relative. Grief isn't a game of higher or lower. We were both just so, so sad. A rogue wave wreaking havoc, threatening to wreck. And I'm sure you've got stories of of similar pain, similar before that and after that qualities, similar moments in your life that distort reality, distract our hearts and disrupt our faith. But the point the author has for us this morning is that in all that unsteadiness, there is an anchor. And this anchor makes all the difference. It makes you secure. And weirdly for an anchor, sets you free. Because God is God, the author has said, and the promise of salvation, life and blessing, remember you promised Abraham? Because that promise is made and guaranteed by God, a posture of faith in him brings hope. A true, trustable, will-happen hope. Whatever the circumstances, however many unanswered questions, through and in all the exposed sin or the pain. Because Jesus has died for our sin, conquered sin and death, because Jesus is victorious over all powers, because Jesus is risen from the dead, because Jesus is ascended to heaven to represent us and speak to God the Father on our behalf, because Jesus brings us in there with him, because Jesus is coming back, because at his return, everything, grief, pain, loss, you name it, everything will be dealt with and placed under his feet. There is security and freedom for us. A solid anchor 
to hold on to, a real person to hold on to us. Keep banking on Jesus, the author says to us this morning. The strength of his commitment to his purpose is just like the strength with which he promised Abraham. His commitment to you is unchanging and unchangeable, proven over and over and over. Jesus is, right now and forever, in God's presence, representing us and inviting us in, whether we want to or not. If we put our faith in him, we're there with him. Jesus is, right now and forever, the king of all things. All those things that are happening to you in your life, he is the king of them forever. And he will hold on to you forever. That, my dear friends, is an anchor. Our anchor isn't the stuff that we do. How long we read the Bible for. How many minutes we spend in prayer. How often we go to prayer meeting, or dare I say it, which church we go to. They're good things. Don't misunderstand me. But the anchor is Jesus. And the bonkers thing about the good news of Jesus is, if we've put our trust in him, if that's you this morning, our stuff can't make him let go. He isn't ashamed of you. He isn't at his wit's end with you. He isn't thinking about letting go a little just to teach you a lesson. He doesn't make you check your baggage at the door. He isn't withholding in his love and kindness. That, my friends, is an anchor. So when my reality is distorted, I need Jesus to put it back in focus, to help me see him again. When my heart is distracted, I need Jesus to fix it on him again. When my faith is disrupted, small wave, rogue wave, Jesus is there to repair or to keep whatever we need. In those moments I described to you just now, and by the shape of my heart towards others and towards myself, Jesus helps me keep posture of faith. My soul being anchored by hope in Jesus means I'm free. Faith in Jesus means I'm free to confess my sin to a room full of adults this morning, and I'm unafraid of being found guilty. I am! <laughs> Spoiler alert! Because my faith isn't in me, or how well I might do things. It's not in your perception of me or my impressiveness or lack thereof. Faith in Jesus means I'm free to be open to Jesus' work in me to change my heart from being inward-looking and me-focused, free to not place my value in my achievements, free to not place my value in what other people think of me. Free to love Jesus more and others more. That's what faith in Jesus does. You're rooted, you're anchored. To love Jesus more and me less. 
free to draw near in my sin and shame, free to rejoice in his kindness and grace towards me. Because my faith isn't in my ability to please God or to be perfect or to do more or to earn God's love. When the sin in my heart exposes me, I don't need to fear coming to Jesus to repent, to receive forgiveness, to continue being shaped by him, to enjoy a relationship with him. He loves me. He loves you. He holds on tighter. And in those rogue wave moments, like I just shared, my soul being anchored in Jesus means I'm secure. He won't turn me away when I wonder what on earth is going on here. He doesn't recoil when my circumstances make me doubt. He doesn't withdraw when I'm tempted to. No, Jesus is firmly anchored to me. He keeps pulling me to himself. He isn't rocked by my grief and sadness. Moved, yes. Rocked, no. He enters into it and transforms grief to joy, agony to praise. When life is chaotic and painful, Jesus is there with us. And Jesus leads us into God's presence, holding on to us. Jesus, our anchor, creates hope. And this hope in Jesus enables a shape of life, a posture of faith and patience. Turning and returning to Jesus over and over and over again. Because his commitment to you is unchanging and unchangeable. That is an anchor. So as we come to a close, let's pull all these threads together. You know, the reason I told you the story about Idris in the bath, oh, one of my sons, in the bath this morning, is because there's a tremendous irony in it. In his fear and panic about the shampoo, caught up in his circumstances, he misses something crucial. All around him, literally in the bath, all around him in that moment is the very thing he needed to help him through. The water. He couldn't be patient because it had to be dealt with immediately. He couldn't be faithful. He didn't trust me to help. He was reaching for control. He couldn't be faithful and hopeful because he couldn't see past the thing happening to him. He's caught up in his circumstances. And all the while he was swimming in the thing he needed to give him patience, to help him trust, to hope for a shampoo-free existence. I wonder if any of us this morning know what we need but don't want to go there. For some reason or another, you know you need Jesus, but there's that block, there's something stopping you. If that's you, please, let's talk. In Abraham's story, there's a tremendous irony too. First glance, it might seem like the author's saying, be more like Abraham, what a guy. 
he's not a paragon of faithfulness and hope and trust. When you read his life, it's marked by anything but. The point he's making, it can't be, you must be perfectly faithful as Abraham was, because he patently was not. He had barely any answers for what was happening. He wasn't climbing that mountain going, great, I'm so pleased God has asked me to do this. Everything's going to be fine. He had a terrible track record of doubt and reaching for control. But what he had was this tiniest flicker of faith that God has promised, God will do. And some of us might need to hear this morning that this morning God sees you, he knows your baggage, and he flat out loves you. For that original audience in the candlelight, I don't know why, just stuck there. Who knows how it landed? We weren't there. Maybe we won't ever know. But the author makes no attempt to sugarcoat life. There's no there, there, Jesus, silver lining going on. This isn't patronizing. It's real. What the author does to a people under the pressure of distraction and fear is he lifts their eyes from their stuff. Lifts their eyes to look at anyone? Correct. And in lifting their eyes, he shows them Jesus, the eternal priest, who deals with their sin himself once and for all, who makes a way into God's presence, draws them into God's presence, and anchors them there. I hope those of us this morning that need to feel that assurance from God receive it through his Holy Spirit. What about you then? About me? I wonder what you'll leave with. I'm sure we've all got moments in our lives, stories like, like the one I shared about and Jen and me in the hospital. And I'd love to tell you, here are the five steps that you need to take to make sure that you put your faith in Jesus. But you know, and I know, it's not that straightforward, is it? And honestly, for me, I am more like Abraham than not. I've done plenty of running, plenty of lying, plenty of disobeying. But in those moments, Jesus doesn't abandon us. He doesn't forsake us to figure it all out or to bank enough faith to have access to him. Jesus isn't saying, well, you just need 20% more faith and then you can come to me. In those moments, those rogue waves, his constant love, his overwhelming grace anchor us to a hopeful narrative, a posture of faith and patience. It's not easy, but that's what he does. And then in those smaller seeming, more frequent moments, there are plenty of times when, you know, my anger spills out or, or my impatience is clear for everyone. Plenty of times when I've, when I've held a grudge, 
rather than turning to Jesus in repentance and faith and repairing that relationship with that other person. That's you this morning. Jesus' posture towards you gives you assurance to adopt a faith in him posture for yourself, to confess your sin and continue to be reformed by him. Faith in Jesus is a posture, a posture of trusting God to do what God does, to bless, to overcome. A shape that keeps on turning and returning to Jesus over and over and over and experiencing his unchanging, unchangeable commitment to you. Our anchor is Jesus the promise maker, promise keeper, the unchanging, unchangeable Jesus. He is the hope set before us. Lay hold of him this morning. He is the anchor for our soul. He holds on to you as you keep turning and returning to him. He is the one who overcomes our enemies, even death, even sin, and blesses us. And as life happens to us or or around us, you might be leaving church this morning to a, a landscape like that of chaos and pain and suffering and whatever. It's not wishful thinking to look to Jesus. It's the only place where there's hope. Let's not pretend circumstances can be hard. We all have our stuff. But the offer this morning is to keep trusting Jesus together, to work that stuff out between us together, to keep laying hold of Jesus together and clinging on to him by faith as he holds us secure forever because he loves us. We're going to sing in a second as the band come up. Can I just give us some time just to reflect? Just a pause for a moment. We've thought about some big stuff. And I'll pray for us before we sing. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have saved us. And we thank you that You didn't save us just once, but forever. And we thank you that we are assured of your love and that we can see it because of the way that you are towards us. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to have faith and patience that breed hope and that our hope continues to be you yourself for all of our days until we see you for ourselves, and we won't need the faith anymore. We pray these things in your name. Amen.